The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Besides Still Waters. Glad you could join me today. And we're going to be talking about praying effectively. Praying effectively. To many, praying effectively has a different meaning. Some conclude that it has to do more with the words that I'm using, that I'm articulating myself before God appropriately. Others might look at another aspect of prayer, such as, are we praying according to the will of God as it is outlined in the scriptures? I'm simply looking at the exercise of prayer and the thought of how I can know, how I can be assured of an answer beyond the shadow of a doubt. To me, praying with the expectation and faith that an answer is on the way and in due time it comes to pass as a repeated event in the life of the Christian evidences that that believer is not only living right, but praying right, praying effectively. We are going to take a look at Jehoshaphat in his time of trouble, as well as Jehoshaphat facing the end of his life, if time permits. This is a useful lesson on what God is as our God and how he expresses himself, his attributes. And I'm speaking in human terms because there's no adequate way to define and describe what is indescribable. That is the nature of God. And so, Beside Still Waters aims to help the believer walk with God. God who is a limitless God. And walking with God simply means that I have aligned my life, my choices, my enjoyments, my speech, and every aspect of my life to be in sync with his desires for me. Is this easy? I suggest it is not. It requires constant attention and developing sensitivity to the Spirit of God and his indwelling presence. 
But today's podcast is not about you. It is really about God. And what makes the Christian life exciting, enjoyable, while yet being one of grave seriousness, is that as we grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we should also be growing in our understanding of the nature of God and how the divine expresses himself. And as we grow in that knowledge, we realign our lives accordingly. Now, I acknowledge to you that this is a bit of a mysterious dynamic. There are many who discount the scriptures or outrightly reject the scriptures as the truest source of revelation of the person of the Trinity. But for our purposes, we are simply going to take a brief snapshot. Firstly, in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 1, we learn that God causes and allows crisis to come to us. God causes and allows crisis to come into our lives. People attempt to escape potential or anticipated crisis, expecting that our lives would be happier without it. Now, on the surface, this is true. But in reality, we miss many opportunities to see the good hand of God at work in our lives. Let's take Ezra as our example. God uses crisis so we might feel our weakness and are compelled to turn to him. When we think of a man like Ezra, Ezra was skilled in the scriptures. And Ezra was tasked with returning with several thousand uh, former captive Jews uh, returning to Jerusalem. But we see that this man was not only skilled in the scriptures, but the very scriptures became the basis for his understanding of the ways of God. So much so, for example, that when the opportunity was before him to ask the king for, uh, if you will, a phalanx of soldiers to guard them on their way back to Judah. He declined that opportunity. He declined that offer because he had testified of the grace of the God of Israel and that he would be their protector. And what did he do? He set aside time for fasting and prayer before the journey would commence to enlist the good mercies of God. Why? Because he had learned about this God from the scriptures 
and knew that compassion resides with him. But we digress. In Matthew 6 and verse 6, the Lord Jesus said, But you, when you pray, go into your room or your closet, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. My friends, God uses crisis that we might feel our weakness and are compelled to turn to him. And in our turning and drawing near to God, he immediately draws near to us. God allows the crisis to be significant enough so we would not think to depend on ourselves. And this is an important fact to consider. We people, Christians, will not call on God if we think that we can solve it. And if we are brought to the place where we know we cannot solve it, we will have no recourse other than calling on God. Here's the first most important fact. The secret of the Christian is not to wait until we are compelled to call on God, but to make it our practice, our lifestyle, to be always calling on God even when there's no crisis. Why is this so? Well, Daniel becomes the example. You see, Daniel faced a crisis when he had to determine whether to eat unclean food or preserve his spiritual, ceremonial cleanliness. And we see his life. He made it a point. He made it a practice to continually call on God so that when the next crisis came, which was King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream that he could not interpret, it was second nature, as it were, for Daniel to pray and enlist his prayer partners to seek God's mercies in revealing the king's dream. And so the point here is this. It was his pattern to seek God. Although he enlisted his cohorts to pray with him. But at no point did it even seem evident that Daniel was afraid or disturbed or anxious. Now, unlike King Jehoshaphat, in the 20th chapter of Second Chronicles, we are told in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. So one takeaway is fearfulness is evidence to us, to you and me, and certainly validation to God that we need to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fearfulness is evidence of little faith. You'll find it in the Gospels when you go to that circumstance in which Jesus was sleeping in the boat and a terrible storm arose and so forth. And look at the responses of the disciples. 
Fearfulness is evidence of little faith. Fear and faith cannot coexist. And the praying Christian who makes a regular pattern of being in God's presence knows the reality of diminished anxiety. There is a clear recognition of the crisis, of course, but it is not met with fear and trepidation, but with clarity of mind and calmness of heart, with the full knowledge that unless God intervenes, there is no other option. Hence, we pray, and that without ceasing. God brings crisis. And as I said before, he makes the crisis such that we recognize it as a crisis compelling us to bend our knees. It is designed to humble us. But I'm here to tell you that the onset of crisis as a repeated event will be the norm in the Christian life if we are not walking with God. Therefore, accustom yourself to being in God's presence on a consistent daily basis for extended times so that our souls, our spirit may be at ease in the presence of God. We would not be troubled or unsettled by crisis. We would be acclimated to his holy presence. We would know the experiential peace of God, the standard that God the Spirit would have established in our lives is to be frequent in God's presence. Second Chronicles 16.9 is specific when it says that the eyes of Jehovah, and you've heard me quote this verse repeatedly, the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. God's objective, my friends, is to keep actively moving throughout the earth. He's actively moving among nations. He's actively moving among states. He's actively moving among people groups. He's actively moving among families. He's actively moving in your life. And he will allow a crisis to come if you are a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will allow a crisis to come not to trouble you, but to give himself an opportunity to reveal himself to you. The second important fact is this. As I just mentioned, God wants to reveal himself and specifically to you, to you, my friends. Suppose, for example, one of your contemporaries asked you to teach them about the ways of God. 
Would you be able to definitively instruct them on the, the, the patterns that, that, uh, that God uses in the spiritual life for growth and development of the Christian, for growth in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be able to explain how he matures his children or how he reveals himself, although he is an invisible God? Could you outline for them the repeated spiritual paradigms at work in the life of believers, irrespective of Old and New Testament or even 21st century Christians? Would you be able to validate this from the scriptures? Would you be able to open the scriptures and show that that, uh, uh, seeker how God works? God wants to reveal himself to you. Nothing more needs to be said about this. This is his heart's desire, to reveal himself, for you to know God, the living God. And closely aligned with that are his promises. And I want to say to you, that the answer is hastened (laughs) when the believer comes on the basis of God's promise. When we are crying out to God with importunity, this is a good exercise, but it doesn't give faith, our faith, a platform for expecting God to respond, nor does it strengthen faith's assurance. So the question is, how is a believer assured? How are they made confident that the answer is not only on its way, but it's guaranteed? Without reliance on divine assurances, God's promises, we are essentially relying on our efforts to continually knock at the door, so to speak. We are convinced that if our knocking continues, it shall eventually be open to us. But we are continually knocking with dependence upon our faithfulness, our consistency, our steadfastness. And it is, quote-unquote, us centered. But we don't have the confidence, for example, of the centurion. He is the only person that the Lord Jesus commended for his great faith in such an open manner. He was convinced, that is the centurion, was convinced of the authority and the working of our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw his works or heard of them, and he was convinced of Jesus' compassion and his willingness to respond. And so this man predicated his confidence, his faith on what he had heard and seen of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was convinced that God would respond. And this is what the promises of God does for you and me. The focus, my friends, is on what I'm doing 
and how I'm exercising my, myself in prayer. But in contrast, if you would note the life of Daniel, when the mandate was signed concerning no praying towards any deity except to the king, we are told that he opened his windows towards Jerusalem. And this is an important fact. This one uh, statement of the Spirit of God that he opened his windows towards Jerusalem speaks of what his confidence was truly in. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we were to go to uh, 2 Chronicles 6, that is during the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer. And there are several points in Solomon's prayer that clearly indicate for the believing Jew to be anywhere in the world if they pray towards the temple or make their supplication within the temple, God will hear. You see, God has bound himself to his promises. And when we remind him of what he has, if I could use the term, legally bound himself to and spiritually bound himself to in such a way that to deny a request that was based on his promise would be to make God a liar. And we know from the scriptures that God cannot lie. Therefore, when we remind him of his promises, God is compelled and willingly compels himself to answer that request speedily because the Christian's faith is not resting on their efforts or their ability to pray or their holy life, but on the promises of God. For example, in verse 20, Solomon asked Jehovah to open his eyes towards this place and put his name in this place. And then in verse 22, he says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes before Jehovah in this temple, then hear from heaven. And again, if the nation of Israel is defeated before any enemy because they've sinned against Jehovah and they turned and make supplication before Jehovah in the temple or towards the temple, then he will, let me repeat, then he will hear from heaven and forgive the sins of the nation of Israel and bring them back to the land. And again in verse 29, that if anyone that is a believing Jew or Gentile makes a prayer or a supplication, knowing that they have a burden and that that believing Jew or Gentile spreads out their hands towards heaven and towards this temple, then hear from heaven. This is what Solomon is saying to God, because this is his dwelling place. And he says, and forgive, and to give that person according to their ways. And then lastly, that if the nation, this is found in verse 34, goes out to battle against their enemies, wherever they may be, and while they are in the battlefield, in the battlefield, I tell you, and they pray towards Jerusalem, where the temple is, Solomon says, then hear from heaven, hear the prayer and the supplication, and maintain their cause. 
And then when Solomon was done with all of this, we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that fire came down from heaven, consumed the bread offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So here's the point. Jehovah responded. And he did so affirmatively by consuming the sacrifice and putting his presence in the temple. And so, my friends, that brings us to this point. And this is more a point of reiteration. God is compelled to respond speedily when his promises are presented as the basis for the prayers of his people. It is not your effort. It is not your devotion. It is not your holy standards. And we should be holy because we are commanded to be holy. And a holy life is nothing more than the basis and foundation upon which prayer is made. However, when we are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and make our supplication on the basis of some divinely presented promise in the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, God sets himself to move in the behalf of that believer. The last point is simply this. God wants the praying saint to fill his or her mind with God's exploits. <laughs> fill your mind with his exploits. Jehoshaphat reminded Jehovah in his prayer, that he rules the nations and that power and authority resides with him. But more importantly, what we find in Jehoshaphat's circumstance is that God is willing to draw near to us right down to the street level, right where we are, and validate what he is about to do because none other can do it but he alone. He is God in the heavens God on the earth, God among the nations. And so what does this mean? Well, it means that not only did he command the creation of the world, but he's willing to, figuratively speaking, step down into the arena where you and I live and enter into the very circumstances that we are praying about and move those circumstances in such a way that we recognize that it was God and God alone that did this. He draws near in the time of crisis. He draws near to the believer. He inserts himself in our circumstance. And as we are praying about these self-same circumstances, it is there that he overturns it in such a way that we see clearly the evidence of the divine workings of God. God draws near to us. Now, we know this is true, for example, in the life of Jehoshaphat, as he prayed, because we are told in the 14th verse that the Spirit of the Lord came, to, uh, came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and said, Listen, all you Judah, 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God. God has now brought himself down into the battlefield arena. Now, I'm using figurative language because God doesn't move from heaven. He simply commands his word. But God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, all the time, in all his fullness, at the same time. However, this is what's different. Though he is near, he does not always show himself strong on the behalf of a person. Why? Because their hearts are not looking directly to him. He doesn't show himself strong on their behalf because they're not looking to him and him alone. Therefore, once more, we miss the presence and working of God. Why? Because we failed to turn our hearts fully toward him. And this is what the seer said to King Asa, as I mentioned earlier, that the eyes of Jehovah, the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth. What? To do one thing, show himself strong. Peter uh, alludes to this as well. But I want to say that the believer, before I go on to Peter, the believer needs to be looking, needs to be waiting, needs to be trusting, and be reminded and remind God of his great and precious promises. And that this person, this believer, is looking to God in singleness of heart, to do on his behalf what none other can do. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4 says that as his divine power has given, given to us all things which uh, relate to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, through which he has given to us the great and precious promises that through this you might be partakers of the divine nature. You can walk with God, my friends. You can know the evidence and presence and power and grace of God in your life and be able to testify of it. When the promises of God are wielded by the believer in prayer before God, this compels him not only to draw near to that one, but compels him to validate his word. We are saying to God in truth and in fact, I trust your word. I believe your word. I'm relying on that word, knowing that God will not fail his word. Throughout the scriptures, we are reminded that, for example, by the prophets and also in the life of the Lord Jesus, that thus and thus occurred because it was written or it was stated by such and such a prophet. And we see this in the life of Daniel in his writings in chapter 9. 
he was studying Jeremiah's writings. And Jeremiah's writings became the basis for Daniel getting on his knees with fasting and confessing not only his sin, but the nation's sin. And those sacred prayers that are recorded for us in the annals of Scripture were moved not by feeling, not by emotions, but they were stirred up by virtue of this man's study of the Scriptures. And so it becomes a vital, important exercise in the life of the believer that when he or she comes to God, they come to God on the basis of his word and not on the basis of feelings or not on the basis of one's assessment of one's holy life or one's spirituality or the attainment of some level of holiness. All of these factors may wax and wane over time, but the prayer that is made on the basis of confidence in the word of God cannot fail the believer because they are looking to God with singleness of heart. The disciples of our Lord Jesus, and I speak to us as well, we are to pray we ought to continue to pray until the answer comes. And this consistency and importunity in prayer is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what is important is the disposition of one's heart. This is, it, it's like waiting for a bus. If you were going on a trip and you needed to catch a bus, you will go to the bus stop with the expectant mindset that at a desired time that was uh, perhaps on a schedule, that that bus is going to arrive. And you find yourself looking in the direction that it ought to come from. You never go to the bus stop doubting whether the bus will or will not come, but you go to the bus stop with the expectation that not only will the bus come, but it will take you to your destination. And very often, this is how it looks when a believer is praying. We are waiting on God to overturn a circumstance. And because we are aware that the circumstance has been brought into our lives by his sovereign will, therefore, we rely on his promise, whatever that promise is, that he will do exactly what he says he will do. We present to him his word. We present to him the promise of what he said he would do. And we acknowledge that we are looking to him and him alone. And now we pray, waiting upon the Lord and waiting for the Lord. What do I mean by this? When we looked to him with this attitude of heart, expecting him to show up and undertake in our matters, and to be strong on our behalf, we're waiting on him. Our expectant result is that it comes from him and him alone. We are waiting on the Lord. But the time frame between, and this might be splitting hairs, but the time frame between our asking and the realization of our request is when we're waiting for the Lord. You see, that's like stepping back and looking at the big picture. And someone says, well, what are you waiting 
for? What do you wait? What, what do you expect to happen? Well, I'm waiting for the Lord to correct, to do, to work on my behalf, my behalf in this entire matter. So waiting for the Lord is like responding to someone, explaining to them what God will do. We are talking about him. We are talking to them about our expectation. We're waiting for him. But when we are waiting on him, it is the one-to-one relationship that is in view. Nonetheless, we know that God is faithful. We know based on his promise, he will overturn the matter on our behalf. And so in this simple approach, we can come confidently into the presence of God, knowing that he hears and he answers our prayers. One note of caution, my friends. Here at Besides Still Waters, we are always encouraging the believers to pause and to take time out of a busy day to be in God's presence. It is imperative that we abide in his word and remain in his love. And what that simply means is that we're careful to wait upon him in prayer, but we are also careful to live in his presence as we go about our day-to-day affairs. We live in his presence, not carelessly, but carefully seeking never to offend him. We don't want to live a careless life. We want to be careful. We want to be simple in our affection and devotion to God. This is the simplest way for us to walk with God besides still waters. Father in heaven, we ask on behalf of each believing one that as we look to you in simplicity of heart and confidence in your word, that you will indeed show yourself strong in our behalf. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.